Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, and in discussion today, we have Dr. Josh Mesrich. He's an associate professor of surgery at University of Wisconsin Hospital. He did his med school at Cornell, followed by residency at University of Chicago and fellowship at University of Wisconsin. Specializes in solid organ transplant that includes liver, kidney, and pancreas. Um, On top of that, he provides a wide range of services, including uh, laparoscopic donor nephrectomy, uh, liver resections, transplants, uh, and bed resections of the livers. Also, something that we are going to come back to and talk to him more about is his scarless single port laparoscopic donor nephrectomy procedure. His research interest has been in transplant tolerance and how environmental exposures alter the immune system. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Dr. Mesridge, and behind the, behind the knife. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's kick off this podcast by uh, discussing a kidney patient um, to set up this scenario. Uh, This is a 55-year-old female with end-stage renal disease due to diabetic nephropathy, now on dialysis for five years, and she is called in for a kidney transplant. What are some of the important things for you to know as a surgeon when you get this call? Yeah, I mean, I think when you get called for uh, an organ transplant, you want to know things about the donor organ and then about the recipient. Most of our recipients have been worked up fairly carefully beforehand, and we certainly focus on things like their size, their previous surgeries, have they have a pretty previous transplant, um, what, is, what is their cardiac status, because so many of our patients also have heart disease, uh, as so many of them have hypertension and diabetes. Um, so that's obviously important. And we'd love to know the status of their iliac vessels. Do they have a lot of plaque? Um, is there going to be a good spot to put the kidney? Which side do we want to go on? We do get uh, uh, CT scans without contrast on a lot of our recipients because I think it gives you a great roadmap. Um, and then we want to know if they have antibody in their blood. Um, that's a really important thing in transplant. People develop antibody either from prior transplant blood transfusion or previous pregnancy. And uh, that's really a critical part of our evaluation. And I can talk more about that part. But we additionally need to know about the donor organ. Um, What is the quality of it? We have a scoring system nowadays. Um, It's called KDPI or Kidney Donor Profile Index that gives us a numerical score that assesses the quality of the kidney. Um, We can find out what its clearance was or its creatinine, um, what comorbidities the donor had, how many vessels the organ has, which we often find out when the kidney is procured, you know, what it looks like. Um, And then we often get biopsies of the kidney as well to assess quality beyond that. So quite a bit to think about. I think, you know, a perfect kidney can go into anyone. Anyone would want that. But when you push the limits with a more marginal organ, you have to be a little careful on the recipient side that they can tolerate uh, initial poor function or delayed graft function you know, where, the, where you put the kidney in and it doesn't work right away. So a lot of things to think about with each organ offer. Do the patients receive any special medications around the time of transplant? Yeah, I mean, so um, you always want to assess, is it a kind of a high-risk or low-risk fa- patient for rejection? So uh, a high-risk patient uh, may be someone who's a previous transplant, somebody who has antibody against the donor, someone who has an autoimmune kidney disease. And I'll talk more about the antibody piece in a second, but when we think about transplant and we think about immunosuppression, I always break it into two two classes, the induction immunosuppression or the uh, strong medication that you give right at the time of transplant to try and kind of reduce the initial response uh, uh, that, that the recipient immune system is going to have when you put the organ in. And then there's the maintenance immunosuppression or the drugs that you're going to keep them on long term. When I think of induction, I think of it in two classes. Um, One uh, class is kind of the the T-cell depletion agents. And primarily nowadays, these are thymoglobulin, um, which is 
essentially antibodies against T cells. They're they're made in rabbits where thymocytes are injected into rabbits and the rabbits develop a polyclonal response and then those antibodies uh, are collected. And that's what thymoglobulin is. And it primarily depletes T cells in the recipient. There's a second one uh, called Campath or Alimtuzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody to a T cell marker. And so those are the two depletion agents. And then we have the maybe gentler agent, uh, Simulact, um, which is a, uh, a antibody to the CD25 receptor, which is a receptor on T cells that causes the cells to be activated um, and ultimately secrete cytokines like IL-2. So if I have a high-risk patient, I'll do T cell depletion, usually with thymoglobulin. If I have a low-risk patient, uh, then I'll consider a drug like Simulect. One other thing to think about, nowadays, a lot of people are using steroid sparing or steroid withdrawal where we get our kidney recipients off of steroids by a week after transplant. And if you're planning to do that, then you need to do T-cell depletion. Um, so these are things I think about. Pretty much all patients nowadays, we use some sort of induction unless they're HLA identical, meaning it's a transplant from a sibling that uh, shares all of the HLAs of the donor. I, I do want to mention a little bit about antibody because it's so important nowadays in the old days, when we got um, a kidney offer, um, we would actually mix serum of the recipient against uh, in a um, in culture against either T cells or B cells of the donor. So those are taken from donor blood or the donor spleen after the procurement, and you would see you would assess whether antibody from the serum of the recipient bound to either the T cells or the B cells of the donor. And then we would use flow cytometry with a secondary antibody to assess the amount of IgG, and that's what we would call a flow cross-match. And if there was a lot of antibody and the flow cross-match was positive, we might not do the transplant because of the risk of hyperacute rejection. Nowadays, um, we actually have much more advanced systems um, where all of, the pay all of the donors get typed so we know what their HLA is, and then we have these beads um, that each bead has a different HLA on it. So when we have a donor, we just select out beads that represent that donor. So we don't even need donor blood. We just get their typing and then we take uh, recipient serum and, and mix it with the beads. Or in fact, we already know what antibodies the recipient has. So we can do something we call a virtual cross-match where without mixing anything, we can just look at the list of the recipient antibodies and the list of the donor typing in a computer can just tell you, okay, they have these antibodies or they don't. So it's really gotten much more sophisticated than it used to be. Could you talk to us a little bit about the operation itself? Sure. I do think the, uh, the kidney transplant is a truly beautiful operation, and uh, it's one of those rare areas of medicine where uh, it's not only uh, life-changing and wonderful for the patient, um, but it's also cheaper for the patient because doing a transplant ends up being ultimately cheaper than dialysis. And uh, it's really a, really a wonderful thing to be involved in. It's a pretty straightforward operation, but all surgeries are major and all surgeries can have complications. We usually put our first-time kidneys on the right side of the patient. We make a curved incision on their abdomen. We try to stay out of um, their peritoneum. So we go retroperitoneal. So you go through the external oblique, internal oblique, transversalis muscle and fascia, and then you pull the peritoneum over. And as you retract it over, you fairly quickly can identify the iliac artery and vein of the recipient. Usually, I put my kidneys on the external iliac artery and vein, but you certainly can do the common as well. You want to find soft spots on the vessels. And once you have dissected those vessels out, um, you get enough out so that you could put a side biter clamp on the vein and uh, I use a straight clamps on the artery. Um, you always, before you put your clamps on, you prepare the donor kidney, clean off all the tissue, identify how many blood vessels it has, make sure the ureter looks good, um, over so any biopsy sites. And when it's time for the operation, you place your clamps. Um, we give the recipient mannitol and Lasix, and then we sew in the vessels. I like to sew the vein first and then sew in the artery. Um, I do make a punch or a little hole in the iliac artery so that I have a nice lumen to sew to. And um, once you've sewn them in, you re release the clamps and the kidney turns pink. And it's a, sort of a great moment that still to this day I think is so special and can't believe it works, <laughs> but it does. 
And then you identify the bladder. This can sometimes be challenging in a bigger patient, but um, you go down uh, to the pubis, and if you can feel the bone uh, anteriorly, the, the bladder typically is right posterior to that. I have the uh, nurses fill up the bladder uh, with methylene blue through a three-way Foley so that I can, if I'm having trouble finding it, I can stick a needle in and find blue liquid and make sure that's the right uh, organ. And then uh, make a small hole in the bladder and spatulate the ureter. I do leave a stent in the ureter and then sew the ureter on. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really the operation. Then you you stop your bleeding and you make sure everything sits right. And I, I like to close the patient in two layers. Um, so that's that's the surgery. And, uh, you know, the challenges can be the size of the patient, reoperations. Do they have vascular disease? You know, how deep are their vessels? Um, those are, you know, do you have multiple arteries? So if you have multiple arteries on the kidney, you do have to plug them all in. Sometimes I'll use the um, epigastric vessel as an end-to-end anastomosis, or just plug a second one in on the on the iliac artery, and um, yeah, that's a kidney transplant. What do you do with the old kidneys that the patient may have, or if they've had a yeah. prior transplant? Yeah, so um, different scenarios. So the vast majority of time, you completely ignore the old kidneys and you don't even see them. You do see the ureter. Uh, going by as you pull the peritoneum over. And if you have some problem with your ureter, like it was cut or it doesn't look healthy, you can actually use uh, the uh, patient's ureter and do a ureterostomy. So that's one option, but we don't normally do that. Um, normally, we leave the kidneys in place. Uh, there are some rare scenarios um, where we take them out. For instance, if we're doing a transplant for polycystic kidney disease and the patient is symptomatic from those kidneys, they have pain, they have cyst rupture, they have early satiety, um, back pain. You know, in those scenarios, we might take the kidneys out at the time of transplant. It is a pretty big operation to take them out because they can be quite huge. And although we've been able to do it safely, as we know, no surgery is for free. And anytime you add more surgery, you do add a risk of complications. But I think it is safe to do at the time. I, I take them out laparoscopically as well. And I'm willing to do that either after transplant or before, but I wouldn't. I don't think I would do that at the time of a kidney transplant. It's just a little bit too much, I think. Um, so th- that's a scenario where you might take a kidney out, but the vast majority of time we don't. Now, previous transplants, a little bit different scenario. And the normal, the, in the normal situation, if a patient has, say, a previous transplant on the right, and we're doing a second transplant, we'll go on the left side and do the same operation on the left side of the belly. If it's a third transplant, we traditionally will then go through a midline incision and then try and find a spot either above or below one of the kidneys. And fourth time, same scenario. Fifth time, believe it or not, same scenario. And the decision on whether to take those previous transplant kidneys out is really based on do you have room to get your kidney in? Can you identify you know, vessels to sew to while the kidney's still there? And if not, you might take it out. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really stuck. We don't normally take out failed transplants unless the patient is having symptoms or smoldering rejection, uh, and in those cases, we do take them out. But the majority of patients, you can wean them off immunosuppression if their kidney has failed and the kidney just kind of shrivels up. Um, So probably 90% of the patients, you don't have to take them out. This was all really great info, and thank you so much for walking us through that clinical scenario. We would now like to transition into more of your personal questions and talking a little bit about your profession. So uh, tell us a little bit about what do you do in transplant surgery? And um, I wanted to focus on like the the thing that I mentioned earlier in our introduction about the scarless single port uh, mm. laparoscopic donor nephrectomy, especially. Yeah, so I, um, I uh, my primary operations are kidney transplant, liver transplant, and donor nephrectomy. And um, we do deceased donors and living donors. I do want to just say how special living donation is. I think all donation is amazing. And in my opinion, the donors are true heroes. They're like people who run into burning buildings to save someone. And I I say that for both deceased donor and living donor. And I think this legacy is so important. And uh, it's such an incredible thing. Um, The living donors, you know, get a little special mention because um, these people are, you know, signing up to take this leap of faith and to um, and to really save someone. And I, I like to, th- I think about 
illness a lot and when patients are sick, they're really sick alone. They suffer alone. They they die alone. I realize family can be with them, but they're the ones going through it all. And to me, the living donors are kind of reaching out to them and saying, you know, let me be a part of this with you. Let me take some of the risk with you. And I just find that gift so really beautiful. Um, I do donor surgeries, um, primarily kidneys. We do liver donors as well, but focusing on the kidney side, we do them laparoscopically. Um, We do more than 100 a year here. And the patients do great. Um, The data is wonderful. I don't really think the data always captures everything about it. I think patients are taking this leap of faith. They're, you know, signing up to undergo surgery. And even though they're going to do great, um, it's very special that someone finds both the time and the desire to do that. Um, We more often take the left kidney than the right because the vein is longer and it's easier to implant, but we certainly do rights as well. Our standard surgery, we do laparoscopically. So we make um, four ports, one by the belly button, which is 10 millimeters, and then two on the side, one on the flank, which are five millimeters. And then we do a small fan and steel incision um, to remove the kidney and usually can do uh, six centimeters, something like that, depending on the size of the donor. And we're able to split the muscle rather than divide it down there. So it's quite a good incision. Um, I have been doing also the the single port through the belly button uh, for some donors. And I do, you know, the main advantage of that is cosmetic. Um, I do not think the recovery is better. I think the, re- the patients do similarly well with both techniques. But in some patients, if they have the right body habitus, it is quite remarkable after you do the surgery. Uh, you'll see them in clinic and uh, there's virtually no incision there. And um, I had this great moment. I was with my family out at a restaurant and I had uh, a, taken a kidney out of a sort of esteemed member of the faculty at our university who was um, uh, kind of a quite honorable person. And she came running up and pulled her shirt up and was like, Dr. Mesrich, look at this. And <laughs> there's like no incision there. And it's pretty unusual at a restaurant, I suppose. But um, it is pretty amazing when you can do that. It is a slightly higher risk of hernia, and uh, I do think in well-selected, healthy patients, um, you know, with really good technique, keep in mind these patients aren't obese, they don't have diabetes, they're not smokers, you know, the hernia risk can be uh, uh, pretty close uh, to the standard as opposed to what some of the data has previously shown in maybe the, the, the lap coli studies. But, um, but it is something I can offer. I think... Um, the most important thing is that the donors do well, and they, they tend to do well. We're able to complete it laparoscopically 99% of the time, and that's been true with both single port and multi-port. And the vast majority of donors will say to us after they've recovered, this is truly one of the best things I've ever done. And that's our goal. Um, I'd like everyone to say that, but um, to me, it's incredibly special. I will say, as a surgeon who does uh, different operations, including you know some really sick liver patients. I do think the patients you worry about or stress the most about are the donors. Now, of course, I want all my patients to do well, but there's something special about operating on someone who who doesn't need a surgery, who's giving this gift. And I guess technically it goes against the kind of do no harm idea. Um, and you're taking someone to surgery who you know they they themselves don't need the surgery, um, but that said, they get a lot out of it. Uh, in terms of emotional benefit or satisfaction, and I have so many great stories about that. You've uh, written a book recently that's uh, been published, so can you share a little bit about what you, the book is about and the experience with writing it, and then any if you have any memorable stories or things you want to talk about from your experience with writing that? Absolutely. I could probably talk about this for the next two hours, but... Um, I did just write a book uh, called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. And just uh, backing up a little bit, I've always been a huge reader and I love the writing world. My brother, Ben, is a writer. He's written some really big books and I think 21 books at this point. And I always knew I was going to write a book. Um, But in 2011, I was reading Emperor of All Maladies by Mukherjee. And I thought it was a beautiful book and I loved how he used his patients to tell the history of uh, uh, cancer, or at least pediatric blood cancers. And uh, it was really a brilliant book. And I thought, you know, I want to do something like this for transplant, but I want to do it a little bit different. And I see my book as sort of three running themes in one. 
Uh, number one is the history of transplant. Transplant is really all about innovation. It, when you think about it, it's a really new field. I like to tell people that transplant wasn't a reliable, predictable field until 1983 with the approval of cyclosporin. And before that, outcomes were you know, really unpredictable, often really bad. Um, patients, you know, really didn't do well, and uh, the people involved, you know, worked so hard to try and keep people going along. So I knew this history was really recent, and I knew a bunch of the pioneers were still alive. And I wanted to get the time to go see them and talk to them. How were they able to do what they did? How were they able to persist when everyone around them thought they were crazy, thought they were murderers, thought this was never going to work, and they just really believed it was going to happen? And so that was one part of the story, and I, I hopefully was able to tell that well. I also wanted to tell my own story of my coming of age as a surgeon and what it's like to be a surgeon, not just transplant, but just being a surgeon. And I, I do love being a surgeon, but I do struggle with it. I think like most of us do, I always have struggled with, you know, being in the moment when I'm with my kids, not worrying about uh, sick patients. Uh, you know, making mistakes, making errors that can lead to uh, complications or even death. And I wanted to be very honest about what it's like to be a surgeon, what it's like to make these decisions about all of the incredible victories, but also the the failures. And um, I didn't want it to be a negative book because I don't feel negatively about it. I feel it's it's truly an incredible privilege to do what we do. But I also think it's great to be honest about the different things that we probably all struggle with and have to manage. And then the third part of the book is the story of our patients. And it's probably maybe the most fun or exciting parts of the book. But I didn't just talk about recipients, but also the donors living and deceased, because I do believe the donors are our patients as well. And we owe as much to our deceased donors as we do to our recipients. And we always have to remember that. I write a lot about going on procurements, about interacting with donor families, about those moments where we have a moment of silence and we talk about the donor, something that they love to do or a team that they liked or a sport that they played. And then suddenly you shift your mind to procuring their organs. And, I, and you know, this whole balance of, of the emotion and then the, the task at hand. I start and end the book on an airplane because, you know, transplant, that sort of sense of excitement and adventure and um, a lot of people out there outside of our field maybe don't realize that's a part of our field. And I kind of jump around with time. So I don't follow myself chronologically. I follow the history of transplant chronologically. And it includes all organs. It includes uh, uh, the invention of, of cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, all the different stories of the heart surgeons who were probably the most most insane uh, uh, group uh, back in the 50s and 60s trying to make cardiac surgery a reality and intersperse it with my own stories and then my patients' stories. So for me, it was one of the most wonderful things I've ever done. The, the writing took about three years. I had a wonderful editor and a great agent. I loved every second of the writing. My first draft was was 300,000 words, which is about the length of the Bible. And uh, I spent a whole year, and I don't think it'll have the staying power of the Bible, but we'll see. But I spent about a year cutting it from 300,000 to 100,000 words. And uh, I'm really proud of what it is. And I think it captures the beauty, the tragedy, the humor uh, of of our field. I think there's a lot in there about being a surgeon that maybe trainees uh, will, will enjoy. Um, it's not just about transplant, although obviously that's a big part of the book. That's amazing. Um, how did you find time to do this in between your busy practice? <laughs> well, hey, so this is, I love trying to answer this question. So I don't even know when I look back, but I will tell you something. I was obsessed with the book. I loved it. I couldn't wait to get back to it. And I basically couldn't wait to get out of bed at four in the morning. And I would write from four to six in the morning. You know, then my wife and I, my wife is a surgeon, Gretchen Schwarzy, who's um, many of your listeners, I think, will know, but um, we would sit together. She'd be working on grants or papers, and I'd be writing the book. And we'd get the kids off during the day if I had time. I'd sit and work on it. And then every weekend from like 6 a.m. till 9 at night, I would just sit and write. I was obsessed. I loved it. I would be there cackling, working on my laptop. And uh, I couldn't wait to get back to it. And the only uh, thing that didn't 
that wasn't good was my lower back. It turns out writing is as bad as surgery for your lower back. So <laughs> I did learn some things about what I hope to do the next time. But, you know, when I when you ask a question about how do you find the time, and, and I think all of us in our field struggle with how do you find the time. And for me, most of my endeavors that I've really cared about have been like sequential obsessions. So I have a, a basic science lab, and I similarly attacked that over the years with the same kind of obsession um, definitely the book. It turns out writing a book is not the best thing for your basic science lab, if anyone out there is thinking about that. But um, but I had a similar obsession. And I've always believed, this sounds silly, but you can basically do three things. Um, and you have to decide what those three things are. So for me, like one is family, um, one is my clinical job, and then you can do one other thing. So that one other thing could be lab, it could be I don't know, being a great golfer. It could be doing something in your community. It could be travel. But like you really have to, you know, you really have to focus and attack those things. You have to be good clinically and be there for your patients. You have to be there for your family. And then, you know, when I was writing the book, it was all about the book. And um, I loved the experience. I honestly miss it. And I can't wait to get back to it. But at the same time, I'm trying to catch up on all the other things in my life that fell by the wayside mentioned that you had some information there about training and things that uh, students or residents may be interested in. Do you have anything you would like to share with this uh, listening group, especially maybe in regards to transplant as a career or um, any insight you may have for them? Yeah, I mean, I I could probably talk about this forever. as I could talk about anything forever, as you might already have figured out. But um, a few different thoughts. I do think transplant is an incredible career. It is really pushing the limits in terms of science. It's life and death. It's incredible emotion. It's every ethical issue you could possibly want to talk about from how do you allocate limited resources to um, should you transplant an alcoholic to should you transplant an active alcoholic to should you transplant a prisoner? You know, um, should we be paying for so much money for transplant when we don't put money into other, you know, primary care areas, uh, then there's, you know, so much cool science. Maybe we're going to get into xenotransplant and organ pumping. So, like, everything is there in transplant. It's fascinating. There are interesting things going on every day, whatever it is you want to get into. There are tons of interesting people in the field. It is a very unpredictable field, so it is one of those where you come in each day and you're not quite sure what your day is going to be like. Now, obviously, there are different setups you can choose different levels of clinical activity or research or um, policy or whatever it is you like to do. But I think inherent in transplant is this whole um, this whole idea that you don't know what your day is going to be like. I do love that we keep our patients forever. And part of that is because they're all on this immunosuppression that so many other, other people are not going to be comfortable with. Um, so most of our patients get sent back to us for years and years. And some of it is driven by the patient because they don't want anyone messing with their organ or their new life other than their transplant team. And I love that we always take them in. It's never one of those services where you're trying to turf someone off the service or transferring them to another service. We just take them always. And I, I really do like that. Um, so I do think it's an exciting field. I think, you know, you could be into science, you can be into policy, you could be into anything and find enjoyment with it. But just a few thoughts for for trainees in general, whether they do transplant or anything else. You know, it, surgery is a tough field. It's great, um, but it's hard. And everyone uh, struggles with it. Everyone's working hard to be as good as they can. Um, but I think the thing that makes it great is that we work so much as a team. You know, transplant is all based in team. We work together. We ask for help. Um, we're humble. And I think everyone should approach, you know, surgery that way. No one should ever think, oh, I'm not, I'm not as good as someone else or you know, I, what would have happened if someone else had done this? We we all think that way. So I just think it's important for people to share that, to talk about it, to be honest about errors, about uh, things they're struggling with, and to really work together. And um, I've always lived my life that way. Um, you know, a few other things, advice to people. Um, I think if anyone out there is doing this career and has any interest in stories and writing, one thing I think would have, I wish I had done is keep keep a journal. Um, keep a journal about your patients, about your days, about your feelings, about your stories. Um, 
because those thoughts are are hard to replace. And something I've done for years is anytime I meet a patient that's interesting, I'll say to them, hey, your story's really compelling. Would you mind if I told it someday? And if they say yes, I'll take their name and their info down. I don't get a consent or anything at that point, but I just keep a running list of interesting stories out there. Um, and I've really enjoyed doing that over the years. And um, the one other piece of advice I have is protect your back. Whatever, <laughs> whatever field you go into, find a way to protect your back. That's some really great advice, Dr. Mesrich. Um, I know I personally uh, am going to buy the book and read it. Sounds like you had a lot of fun mm -hmm. writing it, and I'm sure it ref um, it is uh, reflected in your book. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, the book is called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. And thank you, Dr. Mesrich, for joining us on Behind the Knife. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, and today in conversation, we have Dr. Doyle. Uh, Dr. Doyle did her medical school and training at Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, um, as well as her general surgery training there. She then came to the U.S. and did her fellowship at Barnes Jewish Hospital in HPV and abdominal transplant. She's now staff surgeon at Washington University Hospital School of Medicine. She pioneers in liver transplant, pediatric liver transplant, living donor, um, as well as other HPV-related surgeries. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thank you for having me. So start to start off our podcast this um, today, we have a liver patient uh, case that we're going to discuss with you. Um, this patient is called in for a liver transplant. What are some of the important things for you to know as a surgeon? Well, I'm first of all thinking about the patient themselves. Are they well? Are they coming in from home? Um, you know, looking at their labs, do they have any signs of infection? Um, and uh, that sort of general thing uh, when the patient comes in. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about uh, when I'm calling in a patient or even before I'm calling in the patient is the features of the donor and the features of the recipient. We don't always have a choice in who um, the liver goes into based on the allocation going to the sickest first. But there are times when um, the liver is not perfect because it might be coming from a very large person. So it might be a big liver or it might have fat in it. Um, and so it might be enlarged and therefore it may not fit every recipient and um, and some centers uh, may not want to use it. And so therefore, at times we're able to choose um, an appropriate recipient. And so those are the kind of things I'm thinking with the donor. I'm looking at size and I'm looking at the donor history and age. And, uh, and then I'm thinking about my recipient. The things that I think about in my recipient, if the liver is not absolutely perfect, um, are things like that will make the surgery more complicated. Uh, is the patient going to need extra grafts? Is their liver um, going to be, if there is their liver transplant going to be more complicated than, than standard? Have they had a lot of previous surgery? Do they need um, uh, bile duct reconstruction or do they need grafts for vessels? Um, so those are some of the things that I think uh, all come into play. And what the challenge is, of course, is for all the transplant surgeons, um, as, as transplant surgeons well know, um, we are doing this oftentimes at three or four o'clock in the morning when we're being called with offers. So there's a lot of thinking that goes into the, um, the selection and uh, the use of the, um, the donor and trying to match the recipient when we have that option. Sometimes we don't have that option and sometimes the liver is not appropriate for our sickest patient and then it goes to the next person on the list. What about the sodium uh, levels. Can you speak to to that well, in these some patients, particular some uh, have, patient population? For sure, some patients who have bad liver disease have low sodium, and um, uh, sometimes we know this. The patient might be an inpatient as they're pretty sick, oftentimes, or sometimes they come in and their sodium levels might be super low. Um, and in those cases, if we have time before the donor operation, we'll try and bring their sodium up slowly. Uh, we always let our anesthesia colleagues know um, as well so they can uh, see them early and, uh, and help with um, recommendations. And, um, uh, and we want to be sure, um, obviously, that surgery is going to be safe. If we don't have time and the sodium is too low, then we will we'll, we'll not transplant the patient that day and we'll go to the next recipient. 
What about active infection? Uh, I mean, I think any, with that? any patient with active infection will not be transplanted, at least at our center. Um, they have to be treated first. And uh, we certainly do have patients who come in from time to time with infected ascites and uh, various other uh, problems. Um, but generally speaking, I would say as a rule, active infection is a contraindication for transplant that day. And they would need to get over their acute infection before we would move on to transplant. Now, obviously, things like hepatitis C and B, uh, when they're in the chronic situation, are different. Uh, I'm talking about an active bacterial or fungal or viral infection. What about uh, some of the uh, questions like, do liver transplant patients need the same match as kidney patients? No, it's, it's interesting. Really, for liver transplantation, all we look at is uh, blood type. And um, uh, we uh, try to match the blood type A to A, B to B, uh, etc. Um, however, blood group O, of course, can be the universal donor and can go into any uh, blood type. Um, so when you have, uh, when we look at blood group B and blood group AB, because they're so rare, we, uh, when the patients get <clears throat> get super sick in blood group B or blood group AB, and they get listed um, at very high MELs, um, they can also get blood group O donor offers to try to help them get transplanted. As uh, as their when their MEL is super high, they're not going to live um, long enough potentially to wait for a donor from a B or an AB, since those blood groups are so much rarer. Another similar technical question, is a portal vein thrombus a contraindication to your transplant? No, not at all. Um, I think um, most of the time we're able to do a, a thrombectomy at the time of transplant. Uh, sometimes, and I had a case um, literally two days ago where we were not able to um, use the portal vein. And in that scenario, we made a graft from iliac vein from the donor and we were able to sew that graft to the SMV below the level of the pancreas and uh, bring blood flow into the liver that way. Now, sometimes the thrombus can go the whole way down into the SMV and um, can be impossible to even put a graft on that vein. And in that scenario, uh, we sometimes have to use inflow uh, from the left renal vein, which is a little trickier and pretty rare to have to, to, to perform. But I would say, uh, 80 to 90 percent of the time a thrombectomy is very possible. How long have you kept a liver or a kidney waiting on ice till transplant? Um, I, uh, <laughs> ideally, you want to have that liver in less than 12 hours. Now, a liver, um, we don't like to keep them 12 hours, an hour, um, uh, cold time here, we, we keep it pretty short. We have ways of doing that by starting the recipient as soon as we know that the donor liver is okay. Um, and uh, we try to minimize the cold time, but it can go up to 12 hours. For a kidney, it can probably go up to 30 hours or more. But um, again, for every organ, the shorter you can keep the cold time, the better. Kidneys are can be preserved on, um, on a pump, and um, that helps the kidney to function better, um, at least in many opinions. Um, our proponents of the pump believe that it helps the kidney function better. Um, but still, even on the pump, you don't want to leave it really more than 30 hours. Uh, but again, keeping it shorter is, is better. Have you, you uh, or anyone put a liver on a pump? Um, to keep it going or to see if like um, maybe going from like an unusable organ to a usable organ? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's, um, you know, it's a pretty novel uh, therapy. Um, there are two types of pump. Um, uh, one is a cold perfusion pump for liver and the other is warm perfusion pump. I have no experience personally with the cold perfusion pump, but we have been involved in the national trial here um, using the warm perfusion pump. Uh, with Organox and um, we have had great successes. We've had put at least 20 patients, um, 20 organs on the pump and used them in recipients with great success. Now the trial um, 
uh, doesn't necessarily extend the um, time that the liver is on the pump over what we would would normally do. Um, in other words, it's still less than 12 hours um, cold. But there have been trials in the UK um, that have shown that you can have the liver on the pump for a lot longer than you would um, have it in a box. And so I think that the pump really will be very useful in the future for um, uh, not only keeping livers, um, uh, not only keeping livers longer cold if they need to be, but um, but in uh, in fact, I think in the future we'll be able to potentially um, use livers on the pump that may be not apparently usable um, when they are in the recipient. So in other words, if they have like an extreme amount of fat or if they're um, a DCD that you're not sure um, would work, then I think putting them on the pump and you can measure um bile production, you can measure other parameters on the pump that will help you know if you if the liver will function at a later date. And this is all still in the early stages of development, but I think the future is very bright for um, liver pumping and liver perfusion. Can you describe a little bit about the operation as well? Some of our people listening may not have the opportunity to see one in their training. Sure. Um, so the liver transplant itself is um, orthotopic. So we um, take the liver of the recipient out and we put a new liver in. Um, the hepatectomy can certainly be complicated sometimes um, based on the body habitus and, um, and size of the, of the recipient, along with any previous surgery that they've had. Um, uh, in addition, when you have liver disease, you have um, a big spleen, you have probably uh, coagulopathy uh, where your blood coagulation is not um, uh, normal. You may have low platelet count to add to that, and you may have a lot of uh, varices um, as well as ascites. Now, when you uh, factor in ascites and people who've had maybe multiple bouts of infected ascites, that can really add to the um, adhesions. And sometimes we see even that the liver is sort of cocooned um, with inflammation from um, prior infections and prior surgeries. And so the hepatectomy can be quite challenging and can require blood transfusion um, during it. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it takes a couple of hours um, to take the liver out. Then once the liver is out, we um, shunt the um, blood flow into the liver um, through the cava so that the bowels can drain. And that's called a portocaval shunt. Uh, we don't do that all the time, but we do it a lot of the time. And uh, then um, usually while we're taking the liver out, um, another member of the team is preparing the liver on the back table. We call that liver benching and um, making any grafts or anything like that that might be needed. Uh, what we need when we're sewing the liver in is a blood supply into the liver and um, blood to drain from the liver back into the vena cava. And then we need a visceral connection from the bile duct, either to the bile duct of the recipient or to the intestine. And we, um, uh, the, the, so these are the four connections. You have the arterial connection um, to the recipient artery, the portal vein connection uh, to the recipient portal vein, and the vena cava connection from the vena cava of the recipient liver, usually to the orifice of the um, veins of the recipient, uh, which can be made bigger by making a caval extension onto the, um, onto the IVC. Some people will do a side-to-side -side with the cava where you'll join um, the midsection of the cava of the recipient to the midsection of the cava of the donor liver um, and sew it in that way. Um, and then some centers still do a bicaval um, uh, with the patient on bypass, which is not something that we do commonly um, here at our center. And then once we have everything connected, um, we usually do um, the cava first, followed by the portal vein, followed by the artery. And, uh, and then finally, um, usually the liver is making bile before we connect the bile duct so we can see that the liver is already starting to function. And then we connect the bile duct. If the bile duct match is not suitable, so if the donor match, if the donor bile duct is very big and the recipient bile duct is very small, or if the recipient has certain diseases like cholangiocarcinoma or PSC, 
then we use the intestine to form a real limb and uh, do a hepatocogeginostomy um, to, to uh, reconstruct the bile duct. And then we always put a couple of drains in um, at the finish and check for bleeding. Uh, we check flows in the blood vessels to make sure everything is open and flowing adequately. And, uh, and then we close. What is your typical um, operation time for once you get the donor liver um, to the recipient? Well, usually sewing the liver in um, is about um, 25 to 30 minutes. Um, and that's just doing the cava and the portal vein because we reperfuse the liver um, after that time. And then it takes about another 45 minutes or so to do the artery um, connection if it's a straightforward one. Uh, but the whole operation is really variable because it depends on how difficult it is or um or how challenging the recipient is i did two liver transplants on thursday one took me three and a half hours and the other one took me eight hours so it's really variable that's very interesting thank you for sharing those uh surgical technical tips uh we would now like to transition to some of your personal questions so um as i said in the intro uh, you did most of most of your training in Ireland and then came to the United States. Tell us a little bit more about your path to transplant surgery and HPV, especially for um, uh, for medical graduates and general surgery residents interested in uh, doing transplant. Well, um, I would say that I had no intention of uh, staying and working in the United States uh, when I first came here. That's the, the the first thing. And I had also no intention of being a transplant surgeon. Um, uh, the reason I trained in, in liver transplant and wanted to train in liver transplant was because I wanted to be a HBB surgeon. And in order to be a really good HBB surgeon, I felt I needed to have some transplant surgery training because the training is uh, operating on transplant patients is so challenging. Um, and it's not that HBB patients are not challenging. They certainly are. But there's um, extra added um, difficulties with transplant patients, given their coagulopathy and their varices and all of the stuff that we've described above. And so um, I, I, it was my belief and one of my mentors in Ireland um, kind of encouraged me to do some training in transplant in order to be a better HBB surgeon. So I sought out um, a fellowship in the US and, uh, and came here in 2005. And I was very lucky to get, um, to get a spot here at Washington University. And um, I, I came here and I really actually only came here for a year initially. Um, not knowing even at the time when I was coming as an international student that if I wanted to do transplant surgery, that it would take me two years to, to train. And so when I started doing liver transplant, um, in addition to HPV surgery while I was here, um, and, and like many of the listeners, clearly I had never seen a liver transplant before I came over here. So it was very new to me. And uh, But I really loved it. And I loved the challenging um surgery and I loved HBB surgery and so I, I decided I wanted to do both and um, the uh, Washington University here um, and uh, Dr. Chapman asked me to stay on for a second year and finish my fellowship so I did and uh, and then they offered me a position here on the staff and um, and even when I took my job here as a staff physician I didn't intend on staying here um, for as long as I have and uh, that was in 2007. And so I'm still here and it's nearly halfway through or so more than halfway through 2019. Um, so a lot longer than I had anticipated. But I think for those international students who want to try to come to the States, it's definitely become more challenging now. And I, I, I think compared to when, when I was trying to come in many ways, because the, the fellowships are, are um uh, difficult to get into, but there are a lot of transplant fellowships in the U.S., and so I think there are options. Uh, but you have to be pre prepared to um, get your research done. You have to be prepared to come over here and uh, and talk to people and get to know people. And and actually, a great way to get to know people is at the meetings. And so, if you come to some of the American meetings and uh, and try to to seek out um, leaders at centers and see if there are options for transplant fellowships. Um, it's probably the best way to do it, but it's definitely 
it's definitely a challenge, but it's a great it's a great place to train and it's a great place to to come if you can get a slot in a transplant fellowship here. Tell us a little bit about uh, your how do you balance your work life and your home life? I know you are a young attending surgeon in a very busy academic center, and uh, so tell us a little bit how you do strike this balance that is so hard to achieve these days. That's a really challenging uh, question, and um, I don't have any really good answers except. Um, I just try to spend as much time as I can when I'm not at work um, at home. And um, I have a, a two and a half year old and I have two um, uh, teenage uh, stepkids. And so we try to do as much as we can together whenever I'm not at work. And um, I think that one of the benefits of transplant is that there are times during the week when we're not necessarily super busy. And so, you know, if I get to go home during the day for lunch or if I get to go home in an afternoon or if I get to go home early, I take that advantage because I know even though I may be off the following weekend, I may get a pediatric transplant offer, so I may end up working. So we, I take advantage of any any free time that I have. Um, and then in addition, um, I get I have lots of help at home, and I think that one of the benefits of being an attending and earning a, a, a living and earning a salary is that you can you can pay for help, and so we have help at home, and that makes a huge difference because it allows me to be able to spend as much time with my husband and my kids, and um, and not have to to worry so much about the running of the house. And in addition, I have an incredibly supportive and amazing husband um, who uh, really my home life would be miserable if I did not have such great support um, from him. At such a young age, again, you're a full professor of surgery, which is amazing. And congratulations. And uh, any recommendation for uh, rising men and women in the field of surgery and how you accomplished this feat? Well, uh, it's uh, hard work, and um, I think everybody who's in the field knows that you have to try to balance um, the amount of uh, free time you have, if you like, and uh, the amount of work you have to do. And it's definitely a lot of work because you're not going to get promoted, at least at this university, without... Uh, publications and without doing research and without being involved um, in uh, national and international um, societies and um, their committees and and all of these are a, a drag and a pull on your time and uh, so you really do have to sort of figure out uh, what you're doing and try to balance it and there are times when it's particularly early on in your career where you may have um, less busy clinical um, obligations because you're building your practice and those are the times to really avail of of your your downtime if you like and uh, get some research going and try to build up your CV because as you get more into your career um, you know 10 10 12 years into your career things start to get much busier you get much more involved in in societies and you have commitments where you're going to give grand rounds or you're going to speak at meetings and you're making talks and you're doing chapters here there and everywhere so it's it can be very challenging um to fit it all in but um you have to you have to start at the ground and and get your research going and uh have and that's if you don't have um if you're doing clinical research, which I do, um, you really have to, to get that going and build your clinical practice at the same time. So I don't have any clear instructions as to how to do it. You just have to, to work hard and, um, uh, and participate in, uh, in every way. One final question before we wrap up this uh, episode. Tell us a little bit about your donor procurement center and how that impacts both the operations and your quality of life. Well, it's uh, an amazing um, it's an amazing thing to have a donor procurement center, and um, any of our fellows who have worked here 
know what I'm talking about because many of them have gone on to work in other places where they don't have a donor center or where they do, but they don't utilize it as much as we do. Um, so let me explain what it is. It's um, a, a facility um, in our situation. It's, it's a little bit away from our hospital. It's a mile away from our hospital and it's about two miles away from the other transplant center in our area. Donors that originate in our organ procurement organization are flown or driven to the donor uh, procurement center and they uh, stay there in the ICU. They're fully worked up there. They have all their testing, including cardiac cats, bronchoscopies, scans, um, etc. And uh, then when all of the organs are placed, the organ recovery is done at the center. And then the remains um, of the donor are sent back to the funeral home um, that is um, designated by the family. And um, the reason this is important is we've we've looked at this and, and published on this um, in uh, in several papers. And we've shown that um, by moving the donor, the costs are decreased by half. The uh, organ yield is increased. Uh, so that's more organs per donor compared to recovery in a hospital. And uh, most recently, we've shown, um, which um, Dr. Daggerford was uh, very involved with, is that um, the time of the operation is significantly more favorable by um, bringing donors to the procurement center. And so we're much more likely to operate during the day and finish the trans or start the transplant during the day and even finish it in the evening, but not be operating late at night or in the in the very early hours of the morning um, by using the procurement center the way we do. Um, so it's an enormous um, benefit to us. And in addition, of course, it saves us um, flying out. So we've we've also shown that uh, we fly out about 80 percent less um, than we would if we didn't have the recovery center. And we uh, are able to keep our call times to a minimum. So we talked about call times a little bit before. And one of the reasons we're able to keep our call time so short is because the donor, um, the donors are, are all uh, recovered so close to the hospital. Do you think that will uh, be something that takes on uh, momentum and will improve the quality of life of future transplant surgeons around I the country? I think that um, the generations um, uh, uh, now who are going into surgery will demand better quality of life. And uh, and so I think, um, you know, strategies like the donor procurement center will become more widespread. Um, but honestly, I think the demand for donor organs is just increasing rapidly. And I think we can and costs are increasing rapidly. So we can't ignore the fact that. Um, by moving the donor, you can half the cost and increase the organ yield per donor. Um, now, there are several centers throughout the country um, that are being utilized in varying different uh, in, di in different ways. Um, and there are some um, that are very successful and there are some that um, don't necessarily utilize them as much as they should. And um, it really takes amazing leadership from the organ procurement organization in order to make it work. Um, so I don't have a timeline as to when I think it will be uh, a national thing, but I certainly think we need to, and everybody who's experienced it needs to talk about it. And uh, we need to somehow encourage the organ procurement organizations to to um, develop it in their own uh, in their own local areas because it is um, an excellent way forward, particularly as we move towards things like pumping livers as we do kidneys, because pumping a liver is a little more complicated than pumping a liver, and having uh, a donor procurement center makes uh, putting a liver on a pump much easier um, than than procuring in a hospital. Um, and I think lungs uh, very often will, will go on pumps and may go on pumps in the future. And, uh, and who knows what, uh, what there will be out there for other organs. So I think um, as the future, looking at transplant and looking at organ recovery, I would see a donor procurement center really as an organ recovery center. So you'll have um, donors coming to the center 
organs being recovered and then put on pumps and treated and, uh, in whatever way they may um, they may be in order to improve them. And obviously this is way in the future, but I think it's um, the way forward and much more efficient than recovering in a hospital. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, not only your clinical expertise about the patient, but also some of your own uh, personal experiences in transplant. And we really appreciate the time you've shared with us. Okay, no problem. Thanks very much for asking me. Until next time, dominate the day.